Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy you are joining us here in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. You get to hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more than that, real ideas to apply in your own life. On this episode, we get to interview a gal who has worked at Google. She has worked at Apple. She has partnered with a guy you may have heard of, Steve Jobs. She graduated business school with a woman you may have heard of, Sheryl Sandberg. She has been all over the world, done all kinds of amazing things for some of the best organizations on the planet. And yet she has this really humble heart. She has this extra step in her dance moves. She's a phenomenal leader. And she's recently written a book called Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. So why bring her in? I think that's a question we always ask before we invite guests to join us on the Live Inspired movement. Why bring him in? Why invite her to join us? Well, lots of reasons. One is I think most of us don't know how to have radical candor, real honest conversations with our spouses, with our children, with our parents. We don't know really how to have radical candor with the people we work with whether that means people who report through us or people that we report into our bosses, the people that might manage us. And the real reason that I wanted Kim to be here today is I think culturally today, we have this dynamic going on where there is an awful lot of yelling. There's a whole lot of finger pointing. There are two sides to every story and never in between shall the two sides meet. Radical candor has the ability, if we practice what she preaches, to draw and create, and then follow, and eventually walk over this bridge that connects the two sides, that reminds us whether the the fight is taking place at work, at home, in government, or around the world, that we are moving together toward a cause that does not separate, it actually unites. And so I think that the message is timely. The book, Radical Candor, is right on time. And this podcast today, I hope it finds you in a place where your heart is open, your notepad is open, your mind is open to how to meet others where they are, how to connect with them, not by being too empathetic or too loving or too genteel, but by practicing radical candor which allows us to amalgamate, to bring all these things together, to meet others where they are, to create a movement that is even bigger than ourselves. My friends, are you ready? Are you ready for this episode? It's going to be a great one. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited to have her in. Please welcome today's guest, my friend, Kim Scott, to the Live Inspired Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to speak with you. It is an honor to have you on our podcast. And for those who may not know you yet, Kim, tell us a little bit about what you do today. So I am writing a book. Well, it is written. It's coming out March 14th called Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. 
But the book is really not just about being a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. It's about human relationships. And I'm also starting a company called Candor Inc. that's building a, a bunch of tools that'll help you take the advice in the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I've read the book. I think it's outstanding. It's out now. It's ready to roll. And it's the kind of book that I think whether you are a manager, a parent, a son, a daughter, whatever, anyone who's in a relationship, which, by the way, is the vast majority of us, none of us are that much of an island, uh, th- no. this book is is worthy. And Kim, let's, instead of focusing right now on the book, let's let's talk about the author who wrote it. Uh, it's been said that everybody has a story. It's just not the story we're telling the world. So I'd like you to take us back to the beginnings of your story. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, it was definitely taught from the time I learned to speak. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Yes. Uh, a, a very polite part of the country. Uh, and it seems like you were taught that, but maybe you're not following that advice anymore. You may have learned a few things that have supplemented that advice. We'll get there in a moment. When you left Tennessee, it sounds like you're no longer there. Where'd you go next? So I, I left Memphis and w- went to college in the Northeast, and then I kept heading Northeast. I sort of overshot and wound up in Moscow wow. in Russia. And where, where, where I began my career, I studied Russian literature and, and started out working, earning $6 a month, uh, uh, writing a paper on military conversion, which was basically swords in the plowshares. This yes. is just after the Berlin Wall fell. And, and I cared a lot about disarmament, nuclear disarmament. Uh, you know, I, I only personally know five or six people that have traveled to Moscow or Russia. What what was it about Russia that attracted you as a young lady to uh, to venture out that way? <laughs> to go there, uh, there were two things. One was that I loved the literature, I loved the novels, and that that was probably the first thing. And the the second thing was that I cared very very deeply about not blowing up the world, right. <laughs> about peace. And uh, and when when I was in high school, actually, the Air Force did did this reach out to the citizens of Memphis, Tennessee, and they flew us out to Omaha, Nebraska. And there was this there was this um, general who was telling us why we needed to have enough nuclear weapons to blow the world up six times over. Once wasn't enough. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. I, like, I need to understand this better because it doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. And so I cared a lot about, about ending the Cold War. That was my life's goal when I was, when I was 18. And then it ended uh, when, I was, when I was a senior in college. Do you take credit for that, Kim? Forward. Full credit. I, I, you know, I did really good work in college. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, I'm, I, I did not really grow up so much in the Cold War, so I hear the stories more anecdotally from my family and friends. But thank heavens it ended. You end up in Moscow. What, what's the ex- experience like after the wall has fallen living in Moscow? You know, it was incredible. When I first got there, it was, it was September of 1990, and it was a time of great fear and great optimism. Hmm. The fear was really, there was no food. There was very little food in Moscow. I remember walking into a grocery store the very first time, and there was nothing. There was nothing to eat in the grocery store. And that was sort of a scary moment. The, the, the economy was really crumbling. 
But at the same time, this was this was perestroika, this was glasnost, and and it was a, a real terrible regime was falling and falling peacefully, mm. and and so it was it was an exciting time to be there. When you eventually move on from Moscow, where did you head next? So I, after four years in Moscow, things were getting a little rough there. Uh, I decided to leave when. Uh, two rival mafias got in a fight and beheaded each other and stuck their heads on stakes. This wow. is in the suburb of Moscow, and I decided, you know, this is getting a little rough. I'm getting out of here. Yes. And so I went to. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do next, so I I went to business school, and and that was where I really got. I realized that a lot of what I cared about in Russian literature was sort of understanding what makes some people live joyfully and work productively and what make other people live miserably, right? Uh, The Russians are very good at exploring that question. What, you know, what alienates us from labor? And I, I, I learned, I had learned in Moscow that the thing that I could do, I was, I had to hire some, uh, for a while in Moscow, I I started up a Russian diamond cutting factory Mm -hmm. and, and I had to hire these Russian diamond cutters. And I thought it would be easy, right? I thought I'll just pay them with dollars. Dollars are worth something. Rubles are worth nothing. Yes. And they'll come work for me. That's, that's, how, you, that's how you motivate people, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you pay them. And it turned out, no. The, the diamond cutters wanted a picnic. And we had this drunken picnic on the <laughs> outskirts of Moscow. And what they really wanted to know was, would I teach them English? Yes. Would I help them travel? And then most importantly, as we got to the bottom of the bottle of vodka, they wanted to know if things went to hell in Russia, would I help them and their families escape? Mm. And, I, and I had a sudden realization, like the thing that I had that the, that the government did not have and that no company could give them was that I could give a damn about yes. them as human beings, Right. And and I realized that like if that's what management about is about, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, and so that was sort of why why I went to business school. In in addition to caring about them, were you able to answer the question? Yeah, I'll, I'll care about your families, and I'll do my very best to help you get out of Russia. Absolutely. I mean, I I, I what what I did uh, as as I I mean I I told them that I would, but then I made sure to spend time with their families after uh, after we finished the picnic and they joined the company. So so there were a lot more picnics with with the entire families. I had dinners at at my house. I went to went over to their place on the weekends, and we really just got to know each other as as human beings, as and it you- was fun. And as I've traveled the world, and you've certainly traveled more extensively than, than I, it seems to me we are way more alike than we are different. The, the Russians may like vodka, the yeah. Americans may drink more whiskey or beer, <laughs> and yet it seems uh, we have desires and dreams. We long for peace and shelter and safety. We have a calling on our hearts. We love our families. We look forward yeah. to the twilight years, man. And, and uh, these are things that unite, not divide. Yes, we, we are. There is so much shared humanity in the world. There's, there's, there's no excuse not to create a, a peaceful world in, in, in this day and age. Kim, you've worked at some incredible organizations for some incredible bosses. Will you, will you tell us about a couple, couple of them? Sure, absolutely. I, so after doing three failed startups in, in New York, 
uh, I, I finally decided to take a job working for a friend of mine from business school, Cheryl Sandberg, and uh, at Google. And, and happily, that experience was uh, I learned a ton and, and, and worked out much better for me than the three, three failed startups. There's a saying in Silicon Valley, you fall up here, you don't fall down. And that was certainly Good. true in my case. Uh, and then I, I realized after about six years at Google that the thing that I really cared about was not cost per click, but it was the team of people who were working with me. It was the joy of, of pulling together this amazing group of people, helping them achieve great results, but most importantly, giving them the, the coaching and the mentoring that helped them take a step in the direction of their dreams. And that was what really motivated me. So I was trying to figure out how to turn that into my day job. And mm. my, my favorite professor from, from business school had just left Harvard to join something called Apple University. Mm -hmm. And Steve Jobs had decided to throw away all the management training that, that Apple had and to start from a blank piece of paper. And, and I was lucky enough to design and teach this class called Managing at Apple, which, in which I got the opportunity to take a step back from having an operating role and really think about what it was that I believed that it took to, to be a good boss, but also to challenge your own boss if you, if you have one as well as being one. If you're a middle manager, which almost everybody uh, is, yes. or, or if you just have a boss. Tell, tell me more about that, because I... All of us have a boss, and all of us have direct reports, uh, whether that means parenting or middle management yeah. or we're a floor nurse or whatever it may be in between. All of us are looking up and looking down in some regards. How do you yeah. look up effectively and guide and manage our bosses? So I think the most important thing is, is to stop looking up, right? I think there's nothing more damaging to intimacy than hierarchy, and so I think the most important thing you can do is to put hierarchy in its place, set it aside. I mean, it exists. There is, there is hierarchy, but set it aside when it comes time to building these relationships and really just care about that other person as a human being. Engage your fundamental human decency, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what, what is it that makes us fall down on the care personally axis, right? Like on the care personally dimension. Nobody really starts out their career thinking, I don't give a damn about people, so I'm going to be a great colleague, or <laughs> you don't start out having a family. I don't, I'm not going to care about my children, so I'm going to be a great parent. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't start a friendship thinking, I don't care about this person, so I'm going to be a great friend. But what, what is it that moves us down? We often get so focused on what we have to accomplish that we forget to see the person standing in front of us mm. as a human being. And I think in the case of, of not hating the boss you have, it's so easy to look at your boss like uh, as though he or she is a tyrant to be toppled, right? Mm -hmm. And then you forget, you forget to see the person as, as a human being who you can, who you can engage with. And I think, that's really important in relationships. It's also, in, in today's political environment, incredibly important to remember that every single human being who we engage with or who we disagree with deserves our common human decency. Let, let's not let go of our humanity as we, as we enter into 
new relationships or or into political conversations. Kim, in the race to drive growth at Google or Apple or uh, carpool lanes around uh, the community, because everybody's <laughs> racing somewhere, everybody. It seems yeah. like in some regards it is the enemy of intimacy. How, how do you encourage managers and, again, listeners, friends, that is all of us, all of us are leaders. We're all, we are all in relationships. How do you encourage us to slow down and to really be present and to set aside the hierarchy and meet people where they are? I think that one of the things that, that Cheryl taught me at Google was you've got to remember to bring your whole self to work or to whatever it is that you're doing. Don't set aside who you really are in order to accomplish something, in order to get, to get into the carpool lane and get where you're going two minutes faster, in order to get your kids to bed on time, whatever it is. Don't set aside who you really are. Bring that first. And p- part of that is about staying centered, giving yourself, the time and freedom that you need to, to, to be at your very best. For me, it's getting eight hours of sleep a night, mm-hmm. getting 45 minutes of exercise and, and having breakfast and dinner with my husband and children, right? If I can do those things, no matter what nuttiness is happening in my life, I can remain calm. And no matter how calm my life is, if I don't do those things, I'm going to get stressed out and, and agitated. So take the time to figure out, like, what is your recipe? Mine is definitely not yours, but everybody has the things they need to do, right? There's a very funny anecdote about an uh, an American cop and a Russian cop. And the American cop is showing uh, the the Russian cop what he needs to do to stay calm. And it's like there's a fish tank and there's a vitamin D lamp and there's a meditation room. And then he looks at the Russian and he says, what do you do? And the Russian says, vodka. (laughs) And and that works for him, right? So whatever it is that works for you, give yourself the time and space to do it. And, um, and, but I think that's, you know, unfortunately love is not all you need, both love for yourself and your own needs and for those around you. You also need to be willing to challenge them directly, Right. If you hear somebody say something that you think is, is wrong, either just incorrect or, or, you know, more morally wrong, it's your obligation to challenge them. Now, it's not about saying what you think is the truth, because there's not a lot of humility in the truth, right? When you challenge somebody, you expect to be challenged in return, right? If you, not that, not that disagreement should be compared to a duel, but if you challenge somebody to a duel, you don't expect them to lie down and die, right? You expect them to talk back. So you've got to expect that engagement. The reason why I call it radical candor and not tough love or brutal honesty or something like that is because candor is, needs to be humble. It's like, here's what I think. What do you think? Brutal honesty is what I call obnoxious aggression, right? That's where you challenge somebody, but you fail to show that you care. And when you care about somebody, when you're so fixated on showing somebody you care, but you do not challenge them, I call that ruinous empathy, right? And, and I think too often we toggle between ruinous empathy and obnoxious aggression. 
but it's possible to both care and challenge about people at the same time. It's also possible to do neither at the same time, and that's what I call manipulative insincerity. Does that make sense to you, John? It makes perfect sense. So the the um, what would you suggest to those of us who have difficult managers, spouses, children, teachers, patients, whatever the term of the individual we are across from in our lives? How do we have radical candor with those that are already extraordinarily difficult just to be in the same space with? It's a great question because it is hard. I don't mean to say it's easy. So I think a few things can help. One of the things that has helped me the most is to remain really clear on going before I walk into the conversation on what my goal is. My goal is to show that I care about the person as a human being without backing off of my challenge. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's love and candor, love and truth, right? And, and so I think that when, 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 if you can just think about a simple framework, right? So uh, think about uh, on a, on a ver- there's a vertical line, care personally, and there's a horizontal line, challenge directly. Mm-hmm. And when you do both of those things at the same time, it's radical candor. And then just think about as the conversation goes on, am I moving down on the care personally axis? Am I so angry that I don't care about the person anymore? I even sort of want to make the person mad or hurt the person in some way. It's natural to feel that way, to move yes. down on it. Just be aware of when you're doing that and take a deep breath and, and remember why it is that you care about that person as, as a human being. And, and then if you feel yourself backing off your challenge, right, because the person is upset or because it's just taking too much energy, force yourself to keep, to keep up with that challenge and think about what happens when you fail on one dimension or another, you don't want to be obnoxiously aggressive. No. Right. And, and, so and by the way, I think that's you, the risk of the conversation that is beginning to unfold is coming across obnoxiously yes. aggressive. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed it is. And, and you don't, but you don't want to be that person and you're not that person. So remember to take a minute to, to show that you care personally but you also don't want to be ruinously empathetic, right? So if you feel yourself backing off your challenge because you're worried that you're going to upset the other person, you're letting go of something that's precious, not only to you, but also to that other person. When we challenge each other, we help each other figure out what the best answer is. We help each other be our best selves. Uh, John Stuart Mill explains how the, the value of us as human beings yes. is that our errors are corrigible. Like we can fix our mistakes, but if we're not aware of our mistakes, we can't fix them. Mm. Right. And so that's why we owe it to each other to point out the, the mistakes that, that we see. Now, radical candor is a gift in one of two ways. One, it's a gift because you may be right about what you're saying yes. and the other person does need to fix a problem, but you also may be wrong. And so by stating what you see, you're giving the other person the opportunity to correct your misperception. And you've got to be willing to take that gift in, the, in those two very different ways. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense that I'm actually taking notes and, and uh, my friends listening at home and in the car rides. I, th- that's worth remembering right there. Th- this idea of sharing boldly what you think to be true 
with an open heart and an open mind because you may be completely wrong. And so with that being said, we could we could spend an hour on my next question, but you, you got 30 seconds. With the okay. conversation taking place politically these days and in media, uh, you don't see a whole lot of radical candor. You hear a whole lot of yelling and name calling. What, what's your advice first to the media and those of us we see on the screens in front of us? But also, what's your advice back to us who are walking through airports hearing the screaming? And what's your advice to us reading the headlines? How, how do we read it through a different lens and read it with a different heart? So what's your advice to those who are broadcasting, but also for those of us who are having the conversations in the coffee shops? Yeah, I, I'm going to start with the conversations in the, in the coffee shops and, and around, around the, the table. I, as I said, I come from Memphis, but I live in San Francisco. So you can imagine that there's a gulf between, yes. between my position and those of a lot of my friends and, and some of my family. And I think that the, the old adage, politics divides, so avoid it. Mm. I think that that leads us to a really, that has divided us much more Agreed. than starting to have the, the, the conversations and starting to respect the other opinions of people who are, who are, um, this, who we disagree with, who we disagree with vehemently. I think it's so, so important to have the conversations and to to honor the other opinions of the people around us because we have come to such a divided place in our in our country by sort of being afraid of the conversations we mm-hmm. can't afford we cannot afford to be afraid of these conversations anymore how can we best uh, step into a conversation like that? Because I have friends online who post things and then their own dear friends and family members stop following them. How do we begin to have conversations where we can speak our heart, but also listen more intently with the ability to learn and grow from someone else's perspective? Well, I think in our personal relationships, it's so important to have these conversations in person. Uh, uh, you can't really have a real conversation in which you show that you care about somebody if you are if you're having it over email or or let alone uh, right. in a in some sort of Share <laughs> public tweet. email yes. forum, right? And so I think that I think that it's really important to to have conversations with family members with friends, but to have those conversations in person. I also think that it's so important with not to, not to talk about personality. It's really, it's sort of satisfying to say you are you yes. know, immoral or you are stupid and, but it doesn't get us anywhere. And I, I would sum up the, the political uh, conversation in the last election as one side saying to the other, you're a stupid liar, and the other side retorting, you're an immoral spendthrift, right? <laughs> and that has, gotten us, that has gotten us nowhere. We've got to quit insulting each other and start focusing on the issues and, and being willing to work together to come up with the best answer, right, rather than just Insults. That's right. Uh, about each other's intelligence and morality, uh, because it doesn't. That has that has really taken us to a terrible, terrible place. 
One of the reasons, Kim, I wanted to have you on this show the week you launch your book is because although I have strong beliefs spiritually and strong beliefs politically, I, I found that I've learned the most from people who feel things and believe things that I don't. Uh, yeah, and I feel so, really so have I. blessed in that regard. And I think the the majority of our community members have their arms crossed and their hearts cold to messages that don't yeah. reflect exactly what they believe. Yes, that is so true. And that must change if we're to create peace in this country. The, the other day, my son, who's seven, and my daughter came, they came to watch me uh, give the radical candor talk. And Afterwards, they were talking to each other. My my son and my they're twins. Yes, uh, and, and they're, they're seven, and, right? Yes, and they said, "Mom, if everybody listens to what you said, there will be more peace in this country." And I said, "From the, from the mouth of babes, nothing nothing could have pleased me more than to hear them say that." Well, and it's it's absolutely true. And again, the the book is worthy of checking out. And and Kim, we always guide our our interview through seven questions as we near the bell ringing. So I'd like to ask you that what we call the live inspired seven. And the first question, Kim, that every single guest who's ever been on has answered before you is what's the best book you've ever read? You know, my favorite book of all time is Middlemarch by George Eliot. Such a great inquiry into, into human consciousness and such a warm, uh, such a such a warm view of humanity. So Middlemarch, read Middlemarch if you haven't already read it. And, and for those of us who uh, you know haven't graduated to that level yet, how do you spell Middlemarch? M i d d l e m a r c h. So it is just Middlemarch, Middlemarch. By, okay. by George Eliot, who's actually a woman, but she was writing at a time when she had to pretend to be a man in order to get published. Mary Ann Evans Cross is actually her name. Perfect. So Middlemarch. Tomorrow, Kim, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, Ms. Kim, with millions. What would you do with that money? You know, I think I would I would seek to give it away. Uh, I, I don't I, I have been really lucky in my life. And and I, I'm at a place where I'm do I don't do anything I don't want to do. I really I love the writing. I love the company I'm starting. I love the people I'm working with. So I, I would I would try to figure out a good way to give that, a productive way to give that money away. Kim, if your house caught fire and all living things and all living people are out, but you had an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one, what would you grab? I would grab uh, my journal from from childhood that my my parents saved and sent to me very kindly uh, a bunch of stuff i wrote when i was you know from sort of age 12 until i don't know until i got until i went off to college 12 to 18 i grabbed that journal when you read through that today kim uh, are you sometimes amazed not only at the, how childish you were because you were of course but also at how profound some of your thoughts were and what your beliefs were back then it's so interesting how the promises you make to yourself when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 guide you for the rest of wow. your life. When I, was, when I was a kid, I, I read The Diary of Anne Frank, and I made myself a, a solemn promise that if something like that were ever to happen again, 
And it was inconceivable to me that that wasn't a one-off occurrence, that genocide could ever repeat right. itself, which, of course, it does all the time. Yes. That I would, I would never sit by and do anything. And it was that promise that I made to myself that, that forced me, really, to say yes when somebody asked me if I would go to Kosovo and just after the, the NATO bombing in 1999 and, and help uh, move a pediatric clinic that had been evacuated in Macedonia back to mm. Kosovo. So those promises you make to yourself when you're very young really guide the Inform who we life. become. That's profound. All right. So if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that conversation with? You know, I love talking to my kids. <laughs> I would do what I do anyway, and I would just sit and talk to my kids. They always say the most interesting things, and, and those, are the, those are the conversations I really enjoy most. The conversations with a seven-year-old. Beautiful. And Two, two more questions, Kim. I, I guess I got to choose two, but since they're twins, I think that's fair. They come together. I think that's appropriate. Yes. What's yes. the best advice you've ever received? You know, it was it's, when I was 15, my mother took me to China. And she took me to China because she knew that it was changing. This was 19, gosh, 1980-something. And, and she said, Europe will be the same when you're an adult, but China won't. And a man told me in China, there's two ways to be rich. You have to adjust your income to your desires, but you also have to be able to adjust your desires to your income. Mm. And I think that, that really has helped me maintain a, a good balance throughout my life. Uh, and it would do the same for the rest of us. What, what would yeah. you tell your 20-year-old self today? I would tell my 20-year-old self to relax, <laughs> that, it's, that it's all going to work out much better than I imagine. Uh, uh, I, I was so full of stress and angst when I was 20. It was terrible. How, how have you shed that, Kim? Just by watching things that I thought were disasters turn turn out much better than I thought, and awesome. and uh, you know just through, through experience, I I think uh, you know, and and also you just it's being twenty is hard. Being t- there's so many unknowns, and you feel like you have to control everything when you're twenty. And by the time you're uh, a few months away from turning fifty, you realize you're not <laughs> in control, but that's okay. Uh, speaking of not being in control, Kim, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Here's what I hope it will read. Radical candor helps to restore civil discourse in American politics. My friends, that was Kim Scott. This is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. I think if you can leave every episode of the Live Inspired podcast and really any session that you tune in in life with one takeaway, it was beneficial to you. Whether that's in synagogue, church, a business meeting, marriage counseling, a workout session, John O'Leary's Live Inspired podcast, if you can leave with one takeaway, it was worthy. So I'm going to have you pause just for a moment after hearing that radical candor conversation between Kim Scott and John O'Leary, what was yours? What was your one takeaway? 
for me, one of the things that I heard most clearly is that there is nothing more damaging to intimacy than hierarchy, than hierarchy, than believing we are higher than someone else, whether that's an employee, a patient, a student, uh, someone who believes something we don't, someone who lives somewhere we don't, whatever it may be, that we are higher than they are, or oppositely, but also importantly, to believe that someone else in some regard is even more significant, more successful, more important, more valuable than we are. It crushes organizations. It crushes culture. And I think it crushes families. And it's something I heard loud and clear today. And in hearing it, it reminded me of the radical candor that my burn physician, Dr. Vachi Avajan, would practice with his team. Every morning, he would round with the entire team, and he would remind each individual from the janitor to other doctors, other nurses, all the therapists, of the profound impact of their work. Dr. Avajan may have had a higher job title. He may have earned more money, maybe, than everyone else. He may have been, in some light, more significant, seemingly, than the janitor. Every morning, though, with radical candor and great humility, this man would bring in the janitor and bring in the therapist, would bring in the nurses and remind them their work was just as important, their lives just as significant. And without all of them working together, rowing together, that this little patient, this little guy named John O'Leary, a nine-year-old boy, would not survive the fire. I witnessed radical candor as a child. I've seen it practiced throughout my life. And I know it to be a truly effective weapon in the fight to make sure people are waking up from accidental living so that they and that we can live inspired lives. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, and I do, I love this show. I love bringing it to you. Please take a few seconds to rate the show and review the podcast. This is a quick way that helps us get the word out. Although we are just stepping through season two, this is an awesome way that we can elevate and touch even more lives going forward. We already have more than a couple hundred thousand, woo, couple hundred thousand downloads and growing every day, every week. It's awesome. You're part of this movement. We're grateful for it and we're looking forward to touching even more lives. So tell your neighbors, tell the ladies and gentlemen you work with, make your kids listen to the show, have your spouse tune in on, on the way to work. Let's make sure that people wake up from accidental living and choose to live inspired lives. So for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this, my friends, is your day. Live inspired.